encourage you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Luke 22. We are going to look together at that well-known account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you'll find that uh, beginning in verse 39, and we're going to read down to verse 46, Luke 22, 39 to 46. I'm using the English Standard Version. If you are, you'll find that on page 882. Otherwise, I know you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Let me uh, just very briefly pray for us and ask for the Lord's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Our God, we do pray that you would send your spirit from heaven, that you would pour out your blessing on your people. We acknowledge, as always, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build. We pray that, Lord Jesus, you would stand among us as the prophet and priest and king of your church, that you would send forth all of your redeeming blessings this morning. We pray that you would work in our minds and in our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may turn and be healed. We pray, our God, that you would give us a sight of your glory, even in a sight of your suffering, Lord Jesus, especially in a sight of your suffering. So we pray that you would draw near to us and that you would work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And Luke now writes, he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that uh, the church has loved to do throughout church history, theologians and church historians have loved to do, is they have loved to step back and survey those suffering saints who have given their life in faithful service to Christ and who have not loved their lives even to the death and who have died the death of martyrs. Uh, there's a book I read as a young Christian, which I've started reading again, called A Cloud of Witnesses. It Uh, recounts the testimonies of uh, many of the Scottish Covenanters who gave their lives from 1680 on during a period of intense persecution in Scotland. And one of the things that you note as you read these testimonies, one of the marked characteristics is that most of these men and women, just the night before they are going to lay their lives down, either in the fire or on the scaffold, they they are opening their hearts and they are showing what's there as they await what they know is going to happen to them the next day. Uh, one of the most famous in that book was a preacher named James Rennick. And Rennick wrote this just the night before he went to the scaffold. He said, I've had many joyful hours, not a fearful thought since I came to prison. He has strengthened me to outbrave man and outface death, and I am now longing for the joyful hour of my dissolution. There is nothing in the world I'm sorry to leave but you. He's writing to other believers. 
But I go to better company, so I must take my leave of you all. Welcome scaffold for precious Christ. By the way, that's remarkable that somebody can write, Welcome scaffold for the sake of precious Christ. Welcome, heavenly Jerusalem. Welcome, innumerable company of angels. Welcome, general assembly and church of the firstborn. Welcome, crown of glory, white robes, song of Moses and the Lamb. And above all, welcome, the blessed Trinity and one God. O eternal one, I commit my soul to your eternal rest. Now, Rennick's testimony was a common testimony. Many of these uh, covenanters would walk up to the scaffolding singing hymns as they knew what awaited them. And we look at that and we marvel and we wonder, would God give me such grace to do that? And, and perhaps we fall back and say, I really fear that, that I wouldn't have that grace to do that. The way they had the grace to do that in that moment. But one of the remarkable things is when we come to a passage like we do this morning, we are left with the question, why doesn't the Lord Jesus seem to have that grace the night before he is going to the scaffolding of the cross? Why is the Lord Jesus weighed down with anguish? Why is the sinless Son of God sweating drops of blood in the garden? Why is his soul, in his own words, exceedingly sorrowful even unto death? Why is Jesus in anguish? Why is he crying out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? It's a stark contrast to what we've seen here in the testimony of James Rennick and others liked him. Well, this morning I want us to consider three things as we look at this well-known passage. First, I want us to consider the agony of Christ in separation. Secondly, I want us to consider the agony of Christ in substitution. And third, I want us to consider the agony of Christ in submission. Separation, substitution, and submission. Well, as you know, in this account, Jesus has marched uh, very, very courageously toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. He set his face steadfastly, Luke says, to go to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him. He has prepared his disciples. He has done everything his Father has given him to do. He has come to the point where he is going to accomplish the work of redemption. And now at that moment, as he goes into a familiar place, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he goes in with his disciples, Luke tells us, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Now, the other gospel writers are going to tell us that he enters the garden with the eleven, that he separates from eight and takes three further into the garden with him. And then he goes even further, a stone's throw, about 20 yards from those three. And so what we have is the isolation and the separation of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Why do the gospel writers mention the separation of Jesus at this point? Uh, Eric Alexander has said, and I think very helpfully, that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had the multitudes. From the multitudes, he had the 70. From the 70, he sent out two by two. Within the 70, there was 12. And then there were three who went with him into very important and sacred places. But in the supreme hour, when he faced the deepest agonies, he was alone. Separated from man by his holiness, but he was not only separate, he was cut off by the sins he was bearing, not his, but ours. I want you to see this. Jesus has to go, as it were, into the no man's land of the wrath of God, and he has to go alone. When he goes to the garden, he is going 
like the scapegoat being sent out into the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews has this great line at the very beginning of the book where he's talking about the glories of the Son and having told us that the Son is the brightness of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his person. He says, when he had by himself purged our sins. And what I think Luke is drawing our attention to and what the rest of the scripture draws us our attention to is that only Jesus could go into the valley of the shadow of death of the wrath of God and brave it alone for our redemption. Now, Jesus was a man. He was not just God. He was fully man, and he needed the companionship of his friends. That's something that maybe we haven't explored quite enough. Sometimes we diminish the humanity of Jesus to such an extent that we fail to see that Jesus needed friendship and companionship. He needed the disciples there with him in the garden praying with him. He needed the fellowship of his inner band of disciples. He wanted Peter, James, and John to be there with him, to walk through this with him, as it were, but he had to go alone. And there was an agony to that. You know, B.B. Warfield, who is one of the great theologians in the 19th century, as he reflects on this passage, he, he says, you know, While we know that it was the death of the cross that ultimately killed the Savior, we know that it was the wrath of God crushing him at Calvary. He says, in another sense, when we enter the garden, we see that it was the grief and the agony of the prospect of what he was going to bear that broke his heart. And and Warfield actually says he died of a broken heart. He died of a broken heart in the garden. Um, He is alone. He is separate. He and only he could do the work of redemption for his people. Well, secondly, and I think most importantly, Jesus is here suffering the agony of substitution. Now, in order for us to understand this, we have to ask the question, what is the cup? Um, These are important questions. Jesus twice here in this account asked the Father to take the cup from him. Now, it's interesting, there's another cup in this chapter, There's a cup if we just hit rewind and went back a little bit to the upper room, and we need to do that to understand what's happening here in the garden. We go back to the upper room and realize that there was a cup in Jesus' hand in the upper room. And he gave that cup to his disciples, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And uh, the Apostle Paul will say that was the cup of blessing that we bless. In the hand of the Savior was the cup of blessing, and he gave that cup to his disciples, and he said, here are the covenant blessings for you, and I'm giving you this cup to drink from. Here in the garden, it's a different cup. Um, It's a starkly different cup for Jesus. Uh, It's as if the Father is taking another cup and putting it in the hands of the Son, and he's saying, take, drink from it, you and only you. Now, for us to understand what this cup was, we would have to go back to the Old Testament. The psalmist often talks about the cup of the wrath of God. Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about the wicked drinking the very dregs of the cup of God's wrath. That's how we understand what Jesus has in view. Jesus is looking into the fiery furnace before he is throwing himself into it 
as the substitute of his people. Jesus realizes that in order for his people to drink the blessings of salvation and to be the recipients of what he did on the cross and what he would do here going forward, that he would have to drink the bitter cup of cursing. Jesus is realizing in the garden uh, that in that cup is symbolized all of the sin of all of his people. Now, I want you to think about this because the psalmist, when he reflects on his own spiritual condition, he will often say things like, my iniquities have overtaken me. They're too much for me to look up. Now, if you're a Christian, you no doubt have felt that at some point in your life. Christians feel the burden of our sin. And when I was a boy, my dad used to say, uh, you know, the psalmist says our sins are more than the hairs of our head in number. And he used to say it's more like a great mountain of sin. And um, John Bunyan, in the Pilgrim's Progress, when a Christian is making his journey and he comes to Mount Sinai and where the law is given and he hears the thundering and he feels the, the darkness and he feels as if that mountain would fall on him, is in a sense reflecting on the very thing he felt when he had the burden on his back. Now here's what I want you to think about this morning. That weight of the guilt of all the sin that you have ever done and I've ever done. Times, that, that reality in the lives of every single person Jesus ever died for are being put in this cup and placed on the Savior in the garden. If you want to understand what makes somebody sweat drops of blood, that's what makes somebody sweat drops of blood. He realizes that he is going to be treated as if he had committed every one of those sins himself. Uh, there's this great picture from the baptism of Jesus. And if you could envision for a second Jesus waiting in line to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And, you know, as, as the men and the women of Israel at the beginning of Jesus' ministry were going to John and they were turning back to the Lord and they were repenting and they were coming to be baptized by John with a baptism of repentance, there was a, a real sense in which when John was pouring the water over them, because he didn't dunk them, he poured water over them. And when he did that, there was a symbolism that their sins, the pollution, was symbolically being washed into the river. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says when Jesus comes and he steps into that water, uh, it's as if John's taking all the filthy, polluted water of those who have gone before him and pouring it over his head. The sinless one having all the filth of his people and the guilt of their sins poured over his head. Jeff Thomas, another theologian, said, as you envision Jesus standing in that line, he says, there's a murderer, there's an adulteress, there's a thief, there's a pedophile, there's Jesus. There's a robber, there's a drunk, and down the line, and there's Jesus. Standing, numbered with the transgressors, people just like you and me. And he's going to bear all the sins of his people. And here in the garden, the Father is giving him the cup, and he is preparing him to see. In a very real sense, Jesus is beginning his atoning sacrifice in the garden. Now, that's important for a number of reasons. 
not least of which is the fact that he's the last Adam. You know, man fell in a garden. Redemption begins in a garden. Um, Jesus enters in on the work of undoing what Adam did in doing what Adam failed to do and taking the curse upon himself and becoming a curse because of Adam's sin in the garden. You'll remember in Genesis when uh, the Lord has brought Adam into this newly created world and he's planted a special garden for him and he's placed Adam in the garden and our first parents in the garden and, and he says to them, I've given you of every tree of the garden to eat. It's all yours. I want you to enjoy it, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from every tree except this one tree. There is sort of a reversing of that here in Gethsemane and with the cup being put before the son in the garden. The father is essentially saying to him, my son, there's only one tree from which you can eat. There's only the fruit of one tree from which you can eat, and you must eat from that tree, and it will be bitter, and it will be agonizing, and it will be painful, and it will be hell. But you must eat from that tree and that alone as the substitute of your people. It's interesting what Jesus is doing in the garden is both for us and for himself. The Father is... Uh, helping us to see what it cost him so that we would understand who he is for us, what our sin has done, and what it cost the son. But in another sense, the father is preparing the son. Jonathan Edwards has this great illustration. If you remember uh, in the uh, account of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and, and the three friends of Daniel there going and being brought up to the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar um, ordering that it be made seven times hotter. And the very men who are preparing that furnace are dying from the heat. And they are made to look into that furnace. And Edward says, Edward says this, I'll read this to you. He says, uh, what, what Christ is experiencing was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it. I think that's one of the most profound comparisons. Jesus is being brought up to the mouth of the furnace of God's wrath in the garden. And the father is saying, my son, I will have to put this cup to your lips and you will have to drink it to the full to finish the work for which you have come into the world to accomplish. Now, the blood, the blood is mysterious. Um, there have been no end of attempts to try to explain medically what's happening to Jesus. We know that Jesus is suffering from unbelievable anguish of soul in the garden. Um, we also know that it was a cold night, which amplifies what's happening to him physically and physiologically because remember, Peter is warming himself at a fire. Um, and, and that even makes this more profound that Jesus would have such, um, such a, a, uh, oppression as it were placed down on him, pressing him down that it would cause blood to stream out of him. Um, several of the old Puritans, would note there are three times in the Gospels when Jesus bleeds. 
at his circumcision in the garden and on the cross. And it's all atoning blood. It's all atoning blood. It's not just the blood of the cross. It's the whole life of Christ. It's all of his suffering culminating in his death on the cross. But here in the garden, Jesus is showing us that substitution is already at work and what it is going to take him shedding his very blood for the sins of his people. Nothing less than blood being pressed out of the Son of God for the sins of his people. So there might be pardon and cleansed. Well, then there is, thirdly, the submission, the separation. He's cut off from his people because he's going to be cut off from his the presence of God. He uh, is getting a view of the substitution and now the submission. Well, notice that Luke tells us twice that Jesus prays that if it's possible, the cup be taken from him. Well, what what is Jesus doing? I thought that Jesus willfully came into this world to lay down his life. I, I thought that the scriptures taught us that Jesus is one with the Father and that he is God. And he is no less God than the Father is God. He is no less God than the Holy Spirit is God. That he is not subservient to the Father in any way, shape, or form. That there is one God, the same in essence, and that the Son, Jesus Christ, is, uh, as the Apostle Paul said, in the form of God. That everything that makes God, God is true of him. That he is the infinite and eternal God. Um, and he is. Um, Jesus emphasizes the importance of that fact when he says in John chapter 8, if you do not believe that I am, a clear allusion to Jehovah and his self-designation at the Exodus, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. I am that I am. I'm the unchanging God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lord over all the earth. This is how much Jesus is God. You're sitting here, breathing. God's air. Your heart is beating. You're listening, maybe some of you are listening, because Jesus is upholding you by the word of his power. The same Jesus in the garden, pressed down in agony, right now is commanding your existence. Wow. That's awesome. You wouldn't even be here if he wasn't commanding your existence right this second. That's awesome. And yet... The same Jesus prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he doing? Is, is Jesus faltering? I've actually heard well-meaning and yet theologically ignorant people say Jesus is faltering. Jesus here is, he's shying away and, and he's, he's, he is, in a sense, on the brink of sinning. No, for, far from it. Now, you have to listen very carefully. You have to listen very carefully. Um, It would have been sin for Jesus in his human nature as a man who had lived in perfect, unbroken fellowship with his father from the day he was born and had never had a second of his existence in which he didn't have perfect fellowship with God in the flesh. It would have been sin for him to have wanted 
to lose that fellowship with the Father. So that as he is looking forward to what he has to do, and he knows what he has to do, and he's tasting what he has to do, it would be sinful for Jesus to want the experience of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would have been sin for him to have wanted to lose fellowship with the Father. And so far from Jesus walking up to the line of sinning, Jesus is actually showing us a sinless resignation of his human will to the will of God. And he is bringing his human will into accord with the divine will. And Jesus is showing us in that way both what we ought to value most and the greatness of his sinless human soul. Um, Now, you may be asking, well, how does that square with Jesus needing to be strengthened by an angel? And these are some of the most profound details of this passage. Notice that Luke tells us as uh, the Savior begins to pray, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice verse 43. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now, we don't know who this angel was. Um, Alexander White, great Scottish theologian, said, uh, and this is a paraphrase, when I get to heaven, um, I first want to meet my Lord and worship him. And then I want to meet the angel who strengthened him in the garden and thank him. Pretty profound thought. Here, the king of angels has for a time been made lower than angels. And an angel comes and strengthens him. Now, little sanctified imagination, I like to think that this angel um, might have strengthened him by bowing down and worshiping him. He may have worshiped. Jesus to strengthen him in the work that he had to accomplish. He may, as some have speculated, he may have reminded the Savior of those great messianic prophecies of everything that he had come into the world to do to strengthen him in going forward in the work that he had to do. We don't know. But here's the really amazing thing about the agony of the submission of Jesus as he's being strengthened by this angel. And this is remarkable. Usually... When an angel comes to a man or woman in the Bible on good terms to help, things go well for the one to whom they came. So I want you to think about this. Usually when an angel comes to someone in the Old Testament, especially, God has sent them to that person the one to whom they've sent the angel, things go well for that person because God has sent his messenger to help them. But with Jesus, things get worse. Notice that Luke says in verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So, so has Jesus been helped by the angel? Yes. Have things gotten better for Jesus? No, they've gotten worse. The angel has helped Jesus to go forward in the the extremities of the suffering that he has to experience if you and I are going to be saved. So for us, they get better. For him, they get worse. 
There again, that principle of substitution. Even as he submits to his father, he submits to being helped by a, a creature, though he is the creator. He is helped by a creature who helps him on in enduring the sufferings. Um, you know, we're in deep waters when we come here. There's no way uh, for me to adequately explain to us what's happening to Jesus in the garden. Um, what I would say to you this morning is that God is welcoming us into the garden to see the son kneeling in agony in preparation of hanging on the cross so that you know you can come to him and so that you can know it doesn't matter how great your sin has been. It doesn't matter. It does not matter how overwhelming your sin feels. The father has imputed that to the son and in the garden, the son is saying, I am carrying your sin on myself. Um, you know, we don't come to Jesus at the beginning of our Christian life and then stop coming to him. We don't go to the cross and then stop going. David Pallison has this great quote. He says, you know, souls always need more curing. I don't need to know anything about you to know that your soul needs more curing. Yes. <laughs> if you're a sinner, your soul needs more curing. Um, you know, when Satan comes and accuses you and brings all your sins up before you, uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to say, I'm not that person, I'm not that bad. You can say, oh, I'm much worse than that. And my Savior has taken everything on himself, and I stand at the foot of the cross where he didn't sweat drops of blood, but he poured his lifeblood out under the wrath of God to propitiate that wrath, to atone for your sins, and ultimately to bring you to glory. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it, that Jesus begins his sufferings in a garden, and he ends the work of redemption in a garden. He rises in the garden. And he opens for his people the heavenly paradise. What is Jesus doing in Gethsemane? He's opening paradise for his people who will come to him and trust him. Now, um, the wrong response to this would be to feel sorry for Jesus. You know, many people have looked at what Jesus has suffered and felt sorry for him and went to hell. Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. Jesus wants you to trust him and to come to him and to believe in him. Jesus wants you to worship him. He doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. He willingly went forward through all the terrors of the wrath of God in the cup. He bore all of it for us. And we sang, we sang Men of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And I always feel a little guilty when we're singing out, hallelujah, what a savior, and our hearts are not really singing that. And I know my heart is not really singing, hallelujah, what a savior. How can we, how can we 
How can we look at Jesus Christ in the garden and not say, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are so weak and we are so sinful. And we are thankful, Lord, for the one that you've given us as a Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you braved the wrath of God for our sin. We thank you that you pressed through the agonies of Gethsemane so that you would hang at Calvary. We thank you that you sweat great drops of blood for us and you poured out your blood for us. We pray that you would cleanse us, that you would remind us that you've taken away the guilt of our sin. Lord Jesus, would you remind us that you have broken the power of our sin. We pray that you would give us hearts that long to worship you for who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would never let us lose a sense of astonishment at what you've done as the separate substitute who willingly submitted yourself in all things, even to the point of death for us. We pray that you would work in us and that you would build us up in these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.